Welcome to Rainbow Colored Glasses, a podcast that looks at LGBTQ cinema of the past and asks what it means today. I'm Paul, my guest is Satirios, and this is our season two finale! <laughs> we'll, be dis- <laughs> we'll be discussing the 1993 movie musical Zero Patience. There will be spoilers. In 1984, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention did a study on the sexual practices of gay and bisexual men in the U.S. A French-Canadian flight attendant was codenamed Patient O. O for out-of-state sample. The media mistook that for patient zero and claimed that he had introduced the disease to North America. The claim was debunked, but the rumor stuck for years after his death. Writer-director John Grayson used this story as the basis for his musical. A museum curator is building an exhibit on patient zero. The ghost of zero confronts him and insists he was innocent of the charge. The two of them go on a search for the source of the AIDS epidemic. They'll meet talking animals, drag queen viruses, and some very sexy puppets. Zero Patience was released in the States the same weekend as the Oscar-winning film Philadelphia. They're both arguably about the friendship between a bigot and a doomed gay man. But beyond that, they're complete tonal opposites. Soterios, what did you think of this film? Oh, Paul... You know, like the, the first musical we did was really more of a movie with music in it. And and I feel and it is a completely different beast. But I went through so many different emotions and feelings about this, ranging from confusion to thinking about ending our friendship um, to thinking, wait, is this actually genius? And I just don't get it. Back to this is just utter garbage. And trying to understand what's going on, because at some point, because of my busy schedule, I knew I only had one shot to watch this. And as I'm watching, I'm like, here, I'm doing that annoying thing that people sometimes do. Like, here, I need to research some of this stuff because, like, who is this filmmaker? What's going on? Overall, I thought it was ridiculous. But I also feel that it wasn't for me. I don't think it was made for me. And an extension of that thought. I don't feel, sometimes I want to tell people, don't go into art without knowing anything about it. But I feel that there are some things that you should research a little bit. And I wish that I had researched a little bit. I wish I had known a little bit more what I was getting into because the premise was so ridiculous that it kind of took me out of the world from the get-go. And I feel that there's a cultural camp that has to do with with being queer of that era um, that I was not privy to, that I wasn't really ready to appreciate or to analyze. And I almost wish that I could have had a chance to go back and watch it again. Cause I think that there are some things that are, I don't want to say brilliant, but I think very creative and brave about the way it was told. There's a point in the movie where I thought to myself, this feels like someone's trying to create the next angels in America, you know, a gay Fantasia basically what it is and angels in america and i had to like say but this was was this before angels in america no it was not but this idea that storytelling which angels in america isn't campy it's theatrical it's a literary masterpiece it's a theatrical masterpiece and but it deals with the aids epidemic within this very fantastical world with angels and ghosts from the past and it reminded me of that this movie with the fact that we have the this historical figure 
these two historical figures from two completely different eras converging into this film that is trying to make sense of the AIDS epidemic in this very, I'll say theatrical way, in this very campy way through art. And there are times where I just didn't know what the movie knew what it wanted to be. And I, and I will still hold by that. And there are times where there's this very sort of real sobering live storyline that's happening. And I'm really confused about how that is supposed to interact with this main storyline between patient zero and the historical explorer scientist, Richard Burton, Richard Francis um, Burton. Yes. So now, I didn't know who Burton was <laughs> when I first watched the film. So I knew I, the name, but I had nothing, nothing significant about it. I had to Google afterwards to find out what, what the deal was. And that throws the audience off their feet right from the beginning, because the story of a guy hanging out with a ghost, we know that we, mm-hmm. that we know that convention plays and plays and films and media have used that for decades, but he's not just a museum cur- curator. He is the immortal Victorian sexologist, Richard Francis Burton. We're told he had an incident with the fountain of youth, <laughs> but it's just there. We don't get a story about what it's like to be immortal during a plague where young men are dying. We don't get a long look on what he's lived through since his career. We get a Gilbert and Sullivan Patter song about sexology and all the studies he did on men's penis sizes and gay brothels and so forth back in his career in the 1800s. And they try to draw some parallels between the way he wrote about homosexuality in Victorian times versus the way the media is writing about homosexuality in present times. But it feels like Grayson, the filmmaker, is just throwing so many ideas at the wall that I kind of want to make him like take take off three pieces of jewelry before you leave the house. And Burton's one of those where I think, does it help the story to have this normie that the ghost hangs out with not be a normie to be uh, another magical figure you you know how time magazine does this um the does the time 100 every year um well one year ethan hawk was writing a tribute to the playwright tom stopper um he was in his play the coast of utopia i believe and he was honoring tom stopper by writing about it and he was recalling this experience and how tom stopper about tom stopper was giving him an acting note that had something to do with the fact that when you when you play this emotional thing instead of the honesty of the words, it makes you want to cry on the inside or something like that. But the thing that Ethan Hawke wrote about him, he says that the thing that you that Tom Stopper does is that he invites everyone to sit at the adult table. And so I think that there's something interesting about the fact that, do you know what? As much as, as confused as I was, I got on my phone and I Googled this stuff and I wanted to find out who this character was, why this historical figure who is not so much displaced in time, but he is, a, you know, an immortal, as you said, an immortal contemporary of everyone else. And he's still in period garb. He still walks around with a candle. Like there's still this very sort of acknowledgement through costume design and also through terrible dialect work that he is not of this world, but he's not a ghost either, which is why it's, it's strange that they would come up with this very sort of deliberate 
literary device, not literary device, but this storytelling device of the fountain of youth that explains why he's there. So there's something that I find to be interesting. Like, obviously, our writer and director had this very specific historical figure in mind. It was a very deliberate choice. Why did he make that choice? And I think that there's interest in looking at that. But on the same hand, I just don't think that you should have to be an expert in all this stuff to be able to watch a film. Um, And I think that the storytelling should be clear on its own merit. And maybe we Google something later. I don't think, or maybe not. I don't know. That's where I find myself confused upon because it's not the first time I've Googled something to get a better understanding about what I was watching in a play or a movie or whatever the, the, the case is. But this one, I just was like completely thrown off with this whole thing about, so you start off with this kid holding this Scheherazade book um, or the Thousand and One Arabian Nights. And how does this fit into this world? And I still don't know. I still don't understand. And they sing this whole song about Scheherazade. I don't understand what, what that was and what, what, and I'm sure that I can go back and deconstruct it, but I didn't start taking it seriously until I found out that the, that the writer was actually a, um, a filmmaker professor like the person teaches. And when I read that, I was like, what, where do they know? And they consider, there are circles who consider this to be a work of high art. And I, you could not have convinced me otherwise. But again, I feel that there is something culturally significant about the way that they're telling the story. Although it was like, the performances were just awful they were just terrible. The accent work was awful. I mean, you can be campy, but you can still be a good actor. Because I think that there were some things that were interesting about the way that they were telling the story. But but I just I just couldn't identify with any of the characters or understand why that they were wanting, why they were doing anything at all. Well, the arc as I see it is that Burton is making this exhibit that demonizes Zero. Mm -hmm. And Zero wants to clear his name and makes a bargain with Burton that he will be part of his display if Burton can gather the evidence as to how the AIDS epidemic entered North America. And that sounds more active than it is because Zero ends up being a very passive figure. One thing he keeps saying, Burton says, will you stay here? Are you coming along? And he keeps saying, I have nowhere else to go. And I'm thinking, I want a stronger motivation than that. I want some action from this. I want you to be fighting for something instead of just hanging out. And the actor is very green. And he has this kind of blank stare that he'll default to when he's in a scene. And leaves Burton becoming the protagonist simply by being the more active character. And Burton's harder to connect to because... He's such a strange, fantastical creature, whereas I was prepared to be rooting for Zero. And Zero's first song sets up his motivation. Mm -hmm. Tell the story, clear my name, why do they need someone to blame? And Scheherazade told the stories to prolong her life. Zero can prolong his memory if he tells the story of his life, but he has to take control of what that story is. He can't be the monster that... Mm -hmm. Brandy Schultz and other media folks have painted him as that song gets me on zero's side. And then Burton is set up as his antagonist 
But once they meet up, Burton's doing all the work and it's Burton's arc as he comes around to falling in love with Zero, embracing his own sexuality and realizing that not only was Zero not the cause of the epidemic, but that there have been a lot of scapegoats and finger pointing throughout the early years of the epidemic that haven't led to any productive approach to a cure or help for the victims. Here's what's interesting about that. There are still, there's recent interactions that I've had. I can't exactly say who or what, but I, I want to say that we're within the last 10 years where I've had a conversation with someone who still believes that the AIDS epidemic in North America was started by a French flight attendant. And I've heard this story myself many times. And it wasn't until I, I watched, uh, I listened to a podcast on Radiolab, fantastic podcast. I don't know if you're familiar with it or not, called Patient Zero. And I think it's one of their more famous episodes. Um, and for anyone listening to this podcast, I think that this would be a great complimentary thing to listen to. So Radiolab, the episode is called Patient Zero. And they talk about the origins of the HIV virus, and that it wasn't Dugas, who, 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 who doesn't get mentioned by name in this, which I appreciated. And so I appreciate this, this sense of like rewriting history. And I appreciate this sense of not so much rewriting history, but getting a sense of corrupt, of making sure that the narrative is accurate and fair and legitimate. And I think that the fact that we have another historical figure who has had, who has very sort of sexually confusing background as this sort of this counter to Dugas, you know, clearly that was a choice. So like I said, the more I felt that it was being provocative to be provocative, but then again, that that's what was going on. That, that, that was ACT UP Fight AIDS. It was being provocative to be provocative. Well, that was also the new queer cinema. The early 90s, there were a lot of experimental queer film directors. And culturally, I just don't, I'm not familiar with that brand of of cinema, which is why I'm saying like, maybe this just wasn't for me. Maybe I'm not the right audience for this movie, which I don't think is a bad thing. I don't think that all art needs to reach out to the common lowest denominator. Well, that's why I think it's so interesting to compare it to Philadelphia. And I love that they opened the same weekend because Philadelphia is going to the broadest common denominator. It's got this very safe, neutered gay man who's not allowed to touch his boyfriend. Mm -hmm. And we're following the homophobe's journey into learning to feel sorry for a gay man with AIDS. And that is simplistic there are defenders of the film who will fight against that interpretation but that was definitely my reaction to the film when i first saw it gosh to to have been i sometimes think about that period of of our country and I, and and there are times where i'm like you know we should all know this story we should all know what happened not just as queer people but as humans about the the devastation that had taken place during that period. Uh, and I'm, and I'm grateful that, that I, that I wasn't at within that forefront. I, you know, didn't lose many friends and people because people of a, of a, a decade or so older than me very, very much can recall with specificity, the amount of friends and who they lost and how many funerals they had gone to that year um, and how devastating it was. And I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of media out there that that shows it very disturbingly, not, and not because it's bad, because there's some really, really good stuff out there that shows it. I think that's what, something that we need to talk about in this film, though, it, to its credit, was that um, you have to take into consideration the, the period of which it was made, that it was made in 93, and that, that he was tackling this topic 
in 93 in a way that was just kind of like, this was, this conversation was probably being had by many people at that time. That's pretty nuts. Really, no one was, knows anything. The fact that they thought that a French flight attendant could be responsible for spreading around uh, uh, a deadly virus is just ridiculous. And people, including myself, bought it because that was the only narrative that was being had. That was the only information that was reaching out to me. But they they point out the fact that their argument is that the the truth will win out. And I don't know if that's true, because you've still heard stories about Duga being the patient, the, the real patient zero, even the though study, the study that here's this, here's a study that, that Duga, my memory, if my memory is right, Duga, a lot of these cases, when they were trying to trace, when they were doing what we now know as contact tracing, a lot of many cases did come back to Duga. Like, like he wasn't, and to say that he, but he wasn't patient zero. And that's the one thing that they're very clear. And he wasn't patient zero, but uh, but it wasn't so much that I never heard the story about patient O, and then patient zero. But when they were contact tracing, a lot of the contact tracing was coming was converging to to Duga. And they counteract in this uh, in this film, at least they counteract. It's because he was one of the most forthcoming participants in the study and that it was actually a positive True. thing that he was willing to share so much of this information with the researchers at a time before they even had proof that the disease was sexually transmitted. That was a big point of contention that is outlined in the normal heart to an extent and also in the band yeah. played on is that gay men didn't want to be told it might be sex. So stop having sex. And the, discussion has been a lot more nuanced since then but at the time that was what a lot of the queer community was hearing and they didn't trust it yeah they're going to get a bad response with it and i don't mean to say i don't mean to demonize dumont i don't mean to sex shame duga either because that's you know unless he was intentionally doing it he's a victim and it's just like everyone else was well Um, and i think that there were a lot of i think that there were a lot of like ultra right like uh, conservatives who were very like Anita Bryan and garbage like that, who who were going around accusing Duga of intentionally infecting everyone, and that's just not true. That and and, and the the Radio Lab episode also goes into that as well. Like he was demonizing, and he wasn't at all the 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 perpetrator, the 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 ground zero of of the HIV epidemic. It just wasn't the case. Well. I was going to say, I normally wrap things up by saying, who would you recommend this film to? And it sounds like for you, nobody. It was not your cup of tea. No, that's not true. Do you know what? I know some really fantastic, very active. I I think that, and do you know what? I think that there are some people who will get this right away. And there's some people who, if they kind of like prepare themselves, could probably really appreciate and find nuance within all of these situations it's bigger than just this love story between these two ghosts i guess i don't know what to call um richard's character um but he's displaced historically uh, and he's talking to a ghost and he's having this love affair with a ghost and i'm sure that the movie has a lot more nuance i feel that we've discovered it just in this conversation that we've had like there's something there there's clearly something there. 
to talk about, to observe, to experience. And even if you walk away being like, you're what the, f- uh, hey, you're going to find out who, who Richard Burton was. And not, not I forget his middle name. I, I, and I don't want Francis. to confuse him for, for um, Elizabeth Taylor's ex. But so Richard Francis Burton, you'll find out who he was. And you'll find out about who, you'll find out more about this really grave injustice that was done um, in the memory of someone who was accused of starting one of the most horrific epidemics in our history you know, you'll find out about what happened there. So there's definitely merit to the film. I just think you need to be prepared for it. But I'm not going to watch it again anytime soon. And I found myself like, as I was watching it, wishing that I wasn't. Do you feel, let me ask you this question. Do you feel that this is a cult classic or do you feel this is its own thing? I think it would have needed to have left a bigger cultural footprint to be, you need a cult. You can't be a cult classic without yeah. a cult. <laughs> you, you <need> a- <laughs> I'd call right this just, right now. It's just you and me. <laughs> I'd call this maybe a forgotten gem, <laughs> mm. a rough diamond in the rough. <laughs> well, let me ask. Okay, I have some questions for you then, because because I feel that you you have given much more than what this this film I think deserves um, in terms of your time. You said you've seen it four times, and I've watched two of Grayson's other films afterwards okay. as well. So, so you, you as, a, as an academic in queer cinema have immersed yourself fully into this world. What was your first impression of it the first time? And how did that evolve? If you can recall, if you don't mind sharing. Am I asking that clearly? Does that make sense? The question? Yes, I think so. I'm, I'm thinking back to when I first saw it. I couldn't follow the story. I thought the men were sexy, but that the... That's about it. The line the, <laughs> stops there. <laughs> I enjoyed Burton, even though I didn't understand who he was. Mm-hmm. And I en- I remember enjoying a lot of individual moments without being able to trace the overall story arc. I liked the, the water ballet. I liked the bathhouse Love, yeah. camp number. I liked the dancing monkeys. <laughs> it was. It- I think there's, yeah, I think that all of those things I found to be interesting. Like with the three men in the bathhouse, so they were doing the, the, the pas de trois, is that what you would call it? But then when they were doing the, the, that ballet line, or at least what it, that's what it felt like to me. I thought it was, you know, it was fun. It was clever. It was sexy. It was, you know, I thought it was great. I thought I was like, oh, I'm going to get into this. But the movie bounces around with so many genres and styles. It forces its viewer to, and maybe this is what the playwright, not the playwright, this is what the creator intended, to have to go back and watch it again, to have to go back and listen clearly. Now, when you watched it again, how did your perception of the film change? When I watched it a second time, I'd read a little bit about Richard Francis Burton. And so I caught more of the literary in-jokes and references that were being dropped around the film. And I sort of picked up on this thesis of how you tell a story about a disease and how you shape a narrative when you're publishing, whether it's a news story or a museum exhibit or a medical journal, because Mm -hmm. he's constantly criticized by people around him for reshaping the story to fit his ends. And the Shaharazad song feeds into that theme as well. And that was also when I started to realize that it was he and not Zero who was the protagonist and being a little irritated by that. I got a little irritated with Zero when I saw how passive he was, how stiff that actor's performance was. I really wanted more 
from zero, but sort of approaching it as Burton's film, I began to see the through line a little better. Although I still think the ending is far too abrupt. I mean, I think, I think, uh, I think that's a perfect uh, way to describe most of this movie. It's just far too abrupt. Everything is, is just comes out of nowhere. And that's part of its charm. But I will say though, I, I, you know, I think that anything that you see or experience, whether it's it's um, theater or film or a song or a poetry reading or a ballet, that allows for what, whether you think it's good or bad, that allows for this, what I thought was a lovely conversation that you and I had, can't be all that bad. Which is why I'm going to go ahead and like say that there might be some people I'd recommend this to. You know, definitely queer people, definitely someone who have a, has a little bit more of an activist fervor to them. For, you know, my, my mainstream film-loving sisters who love romantic comedies, no, I'm not going to suggest that they watch this movie in a million years. I think that they'll, they would probably have nightmares of the talking assholes. The literal talking assholes. I'm not talking about, like, politicians talking. I'm talking about buttholes blah, 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 blah. it was kind of yeah the puppets the scary the, puppets yeah they were puppets and after i finally figured out that like you're oh they're were they puppets or were did they just create these basically these bodies with a place for the head and the butt like were those actual lips masks yes the yeah. the actors the actors mouths were in the masks. Were the ones that are actually doing it gross um <laughs> But the again, the lyrics are clever. It's, it's funny to to say that the lyrics to the butthole duet are clever. I because... do you know what you're probably right about it, but I just could not find a way to appreciate it. I couldn't because I... they were talking buttholes singing. <laughs> but again, it was memorable, and we're having a conversation about it. And me, who kind of was thrown off by it, is being told that this moment by you, who has allowed yourself to dive, dive into it um, has a lot more nuance than, than I gave it credit for. But overall, I, gosh, I thought this movie was garbage, <laughs> but with merit. <laughs> <laughs> I'd recommend this to fans of weird musicals, um, experimental cinema. If you're a fan of Greg Araki's films from the nineties, if you're a fan of Derek Jarman's work, I'd say see if you can track down Zero Patience. You'll be intrigued. You won't be bored. <laughs> you definitely won't be bored. You definitely won't be bored. I'll give the movie that. You won't be bored. Well, this is our season two finale of Rainbow Colored Glasses. Paul. Thank you. It has really been such you. a pleasure. You've it's made two seasons a of a podcast. How crazy is that? That's nuts. Look, That's I made nuts. a hat. You made a hat. You did. Good job. Thank you for listening to Rainbow Colored Glasses. I'd like to give a special thanks to the Bad Gay Movies podcast for giving us a shout out. You can find them wherever you listen to podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at Glasses Rainbow. The music you're listening to is Squares, licensed under Creative Commons. If you like us, please visit Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. Goodbye for now.